0: So, Jay, did Decimation strike you as kinda sketchy? Which part of Decimation, Miles? Scarlet Witch using her internalized anti-mutant bigotry to rewrite the universe after being manipulated by Quicksilver into creating a mutant-supremacist utopia? Or maybe all the combined energy from the depowered mutants getting shot into space and jarring Vulcan loose from the remains of Krakoa before being absorbed by a postman?
1: The answer is yes regardless, but I am still curious. I mean, all of that, too, but I was specifically thinking of the part where almost all of the central X-Men characters just happened to be among the 198 mutants who kept their powers. Or the ones who got them back, like, you know, Magneto and Professor X. Wait, Professor X lost his powers? He did
0: regain the ability to walk, so not a total loss.
1: Huh. How'd he get his powers back?
0: Well, see, he tried to confront Vulcan.
1: That seems like a dubious plan.
0: It was. Vulcan threw him into the Mkron crystal. WHAT?! I'm Jay Ediden.
1: And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain
0: the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 236 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the
1: retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our third and final Fatal Attractions episode. But first, we have some stuff to tell you about. Right. Emerald City is coming up fast. It's going to be March 14th through 17th
0: in Seattle, and we are going to be there. We will be at um, KK10
1: in Artist Alley all weekend. And on Saturday, March 16th at 6.30 p.m., we have a live freaking episode with some super rad guests.
0: Right, we're going to be sitting down with Vida Ayala, Seanan McGuire, and Leah Williams, and that panel is going to be followed immediately by our fifth birthday party at Phoenix Comics.
1: Fifth birthday party? I mean, okay, technically it's a little before our fifth birthday party, but we'll be in the same place, and a lot of you will be there, so we're, we're calling it then, but five years? Holy crap, Jay. And that's a lot of X man. Oh, man, and and we still have so much X-Men to go. I know, I know. Maybe too much X-Men. But speaking of things that aren't X-Men, so, Jay, I know you were caught up a long time ago, but I started watching Runaways while I was recovering from some minor oral surgery that I had It's great. The TV show? It's freaking great. I love it. Runaways is one of my favorite non-X-Men comics, and so seeing an adaptation that both stays true to the spirit of the comics and also changes a bunch of stuff up to better fit television and to keep me on my toes, I'm really, really pleased.
0: Nice. Um, I, meanwhile, watched all of Russian Doll last weekend, which was pretty spectacular. I've only heard the vaguest things about that, but everybody seems to like it. It's really neat. It Starts out very slow, and it does both a very slow build and something that I particularly love, which is a very slow genre shift. Um, the nature of the show and the way it feels changes really radically and so subtly that you don't really quite realize how hard it's changing until it's all the way across. It's really neat, and if you like, if you like, if you like weird... It's, it's a really, really good um, good show to watch. It's also pretty quick, which is nice.
1: Okay. Well, I have a lot of runaways to catch up on, but um, yeah, that's going on the list, along with so many other things. There's so much television.
0: Right? There's so much really good television, which I guess is a better problem to have than the reverse.
1: It's true. It's true.
0: But then there are also books, and there are movies, and there are comics, and man... Earth certainly is full of things.
1: (laughs) Thank you, King of all Cosmos.
0: Well, the thing that we're talking about today is the last two issues, the last um,
1: third of Fatal Attractions. Indeed we are. These are going to be the Wolverine and Excalibur issues. But since we're already two-thirds done, I feel like we should begin with a... Previously on X-Men.
0: Magneto, thought dead since
1: the end of Chris Claremont's
0: brief run on the relaunched X-Men, has
1: returned. This incarnation of the Master of Magnetism was totally over-humanity, and wanted the worthiest mutants to abandon Earth and come live with him on Avalon, his mutants-only space station equivalent of a no-girls-allowed treehouse. Unfortunately, Magneto thought that the best way to invite the X-Men
0: to Avalon was to crash the funeral of Iliana Rasputin, Colossus's little
1: sister. Most of our heroes were not particularly charmed, but Colossus, who had just lost his final family member after his parents and his brother's death, and who had suffered a severe head wound that left him stuck in his metal form, decided to give Avalon and Magneto a shot.
0: Meanwhile, the leaders of Earth activated the Magneto protocols, using dubious science to prevent Magneto from using his powers on
1: the planet. Or at least that was the intent. Magneto took this as an act of war and hit the planet with an EMP, killing thousands of people. So Professor Xavier assembled a strike force consisting of him and five of the X-Men to take Magneto down for good. Unfortunately,
0: Professor Xavier decided to include on that strike force the member of the X-Men with a metal skeleton, which Magneto brutally ripped out, damn near
1: killing Logan for real. Professor Xavier was pushed past the brink, his dream beaten and bruised, and so he telepathically annihilated Magneto's mind. Permanently. Well, at least as permanently as things ever are in comics.
0: Meanwhile, Excalibur's got their own problems. They recently lost Captain Britain to the time stream, Megan and Farron to being sad in a waterfall, and Cerise to questionable space law. I mean, things can't get any worse
1: for Excalibur, can they? They've only got five members left. That's two more than they'll have by the end of this episode. And that brings us to our first issue, Wolverine number 75, Nightmares Persist. This is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Adam Kubert, inked by Mark Farmer, Dan Green, and Mark Pennington, and colored by Steve Buccalato. And we haven't covered very much Wolverine. What's been going on for a long time is that Larry Hama has been the primary writer. He has a long run on Wolverine. You may recall that we covered issues, I believe, 48 through 50, the Shiva scenario, a while back. That was the storyline where Wolverine learned, learned that many of his memories are implants and stuff like that.
0: And Hama is terrific. This is a run that I think is is well worth going through. Again, we're not sure how much of it we're actually going to do on the podcast. But if if you are inclined to look it up, we recommend it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, this being an issue of Fatal Attractions, it's got a cardstock cover, it's double-sized, and it's got a hologram on the front of it. This hologram is, unsurprisingly, Wolverine. And as with every other Fatal Attractions chapter, there's a very dramatic quote below.
0: A new mystery begins as a life hangs in the balance.
1: Or, a new mystery begins as a life hangs in the In the balance. Wizard reading porn, I'm telling you. Choose your own adventure. Now, speaking of the cover, okay, so the cover of this comic is not what you would expect based on what's inside it. Like, what the comic is about is this big dramatic thing as the blackbird tries to re-enter the atmosphere and Logan's dying and then Logan's sort of recovering. But on the cover, we have Logan wearing these teeny tiny blue briefs with these giant flesh spikes protruding from his body. Now, in my head, I always remember this cover as having adamantium being pulled out of his body, but no, it's just flesh-colored spikes, kind of like in the Weapon X miniseries when he has his like uh, fictional nightmares of that occurring. And that also is why I always remember this issue as the one where Logan's adamantium gets ripped out, not X-Men 25. But no, that's not the case.
0: You know, I do too, and I don't think the cover's the only reason. I think part of it is that Kubert's art and Kubert's version of that scene and of of the visual of the Adamantium being ripped out of, of Logan's skeleton is just the definitive one. It's so good.
1: It's really cool, yeah. And it showcases Logan's pain, and it's that pain with which we start this issue's narration. You ever been hurt so bad you couldn't hear anything but a high pitched roar. And then you realized that it was the sound of yourself screaming.
0: So Logan is in bad, bad shape. Um, he, is, he is a mess physically. He's in a, um, some sort of magical special technology medical unit. And Xavier and Jean are trying to uh, stem the psychic trauma that he's experiencing.
1: And let's talk about this for a second, because I feel like we've talked so many times about Logan getting the adamantium ripped out of his skeleton that it sounds like, I mean, not fun, but not that big of a deal. But no, think about it. He had a substance coating his skeleton, and it was ripped off of his bones and threw the intervening flesh out into the world. His body is like more whole than muscle and fat and skin at this point. And I don't care what kind of healing factor you have, that will fuck you up.
0: You know, there are, there are a number of anatomical questions I have related to this. Some of them depend on how the adamantium is attached to his skeleton. Some of them depend on how it's ripped out, whether, for example, it's all pulled out in the same direction. Um, so, for instance, whether all of the adamantium on the backs of his ribs just go straight through his ribs and organs out the front or around and so forth. Anyway, the point is it's awful regardless.
1: Yeah, and this issue does a great job of selling just how severe the physical trauma and the psychological trauma is from having something that overwhelmingly horrible happen to your body. So, Jay, like you said, Professor Xavier and Jean Grey, who were two members of the strike force that went to confront Magneto, use their telepathy to get into Logan's mind to see what they can do to help. And I always love when we get to see the inside of Logan's mind because it's very often depicted as super surreal but also, like, appropriately representational. And what we see here is this surreal landscape of... Uh, in the center of which Logan is tied to a tree wearing his Weapon X gear and having Sabertooth and Lady Deathstrike just slash him into pieces, just slashing enormous chunks out of him. But in the background, there are like Salvador Dali-style melting clocks draped over things, and delirium from Sandman-style schools of neon fish just swimming through the air. Like, it manages to be a dream sequence, like, clearly an imagined scenario, but one that's just so visceral and uncomfortable.
0: I really don't like it when Logan's mind has derivative psychedelia. Like, I, I actually found the melting clocks kind of annoying.
1: Okay, that is perhaps a valid point. Um, My theory is that, you know how um, Sabretooth beats Logan up on his birthday every year and almost kills him? Yeah. Well, maybe Logan took a trip to, like, uh, a modern art museum on one of his birthdays to celebrate it, and uh, Sabretooth slashed him into little tiny pieces while he was looking at a dolly piece.
0: Maybe specifically he went to the dolly museum in St. Petersburg.
1: Um, yes, that one. Oh, is that the one that uh, has a Salvador dolly-created holographic image of Alice Cooper with his skull open and his brain visible? It is. Huh. Well, Salvador Dali was a horrible human being, but he sure did make some cool stuff. Yes. Back in, well, I would say meat space, but... Everything is sort of meat space in this issue. Back in the non-psychic world, Bishop and Quicksilver, uh, one member of the uh, Strike Force and the person who came to rescue them, irrespectively, are trying to pilot the Blackbird, and they're having a hell of a time with re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The Blackbird is capable of going into and out of space, but it's not really designed for it, and with all the electromagnetic stuff going on, it's a bad scene.
0: And... One of the things that really, really effectively ramps up the sense of urgency here, really makes it feel high stakes, is how deftly Larry Hama, story-wise, evokes the Phoenix Saga, because for it to survive re-entry, Gene is having to telepathically hold the Blackbird together.
1: Yeah, totally. But also just the pacing in general and credit to Mr. Hubert for this one as well. Like as we go back and forth from Gene and Xavier going into and out of Logan's mind based on where they're needed most and Logan just suffering and maybe being pulled away from the mortal coil and everything going wrong. One thing after another and Bishop and Quicksilver trying to hold the Blackbird together and Rogan Gambit trying to help. Like it's just it just escalates the tension with every little transition. A lot of the time those transitions. Transitions can be distracting. But with this, as you have two parallel scenarios, each getting more and more fucked, like I've read this issue, I don't even know how many times. I loved Fatal Attractions when I was a kid, so probably dozens. And still reading it again and then reading it a second time as I prepared for this episode, which I usually try to do with comics, like I was on the edge of my seat the whole goddamn time, every one of those times. One of the things to which comics as a medium
0: are singularly suited is simultaneous action and that in this case allows hama and q and company to create just incredibly visually frantic pages that convey that urgency so so well and and in fact you know the characters are, are frantic as well and fortunately um there's there's the detail i don't remember Oh, it's, it's Bishop who, who grabs Quicksilver and tells him and sticks him in the pilot seat, right? And just says, someone has to do this. And Quicksilver realizes after a moment that, oh, the reason that that was a really good decision is that literally no one else could manually pilot the Blackbird fast and, and deal with the controls fast enough
1: to do this safely. Right, like with everything going wrong, one thing after another. And one of the things that goes wrong is that as the Blackbird pitches around... Logan's meta unit is just smacked really hard headfirst into a wall and he. Ouch. Yeah. And he wakes up. And we see here what his healing factor is doing. It's trying to heal the wounds, it's trying to close them up. But there's just such continual deterioration from how fucked his body is and it's not working. Logan's finally encountered something that his healing factor can't really take care of. And he thinks he's gonna die he talks about how he's glad gene gray's finally gonna be happy even if he wishes things had gone differently between them he asks professor x to take care of jubilee who of course is on the other end of the radio with moira mctaggart and is panicking hearing all this like and even though we know of course logan's gonna survive still that tension is is there so they they do make it down safely and again that
0: that same sort of sense of 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 frantic overwhelm um extends to the the folks at headquarters, Jubilee who's who's who's, you know, been been panicking about Logan, and Scott who who echoes my sentiment that this is really evocative of the first time Gene died.
1: Yeah, and I gotta say it's also very Scott Summers to have something so horrible happen to Logan and to be like, but what about Gene? Even if I totally understand where he's coming from. Or just, you know,
0: bad flashbacks to that. Although I feel like this is this is also for the for those of you who ship it, this is a bit of a gift.
1: <laughs> there is that, yeah. Now Back on the Blackbird as it c- continues to attempt to land, Xavier goes back into Logan's mind because Logan is just slipping away. And what I really appreciate about Kubert's work here is that he sh- completely shifts styles in this scene. Like it looks almost like Jay Lee's work. It's this sort of jagged, ragged, harsh style suddenly. And I also really enjoy Professor Xavier, perhaps excessively poetically describing Logan's mental landscape.
0: Here, the pure line of logic has been intersected by the variable wave of pain. Here, the blind may see with electric eyes, and rip with claws of mythic metal. Here is reenacted the personal Ragnarok of a shattered soul, staged with accumulated props and baggage of trauma's past.
1: Dude, I would totally listen to this metal album. It would be amazing. I mean, you couldn't really understand the lyrics, like you'd need to know what they are or maybe find them online or something, but it would sound really cool anyway.
0: Baggage of trauma's past is, of course, a lesser-known, you know, major event.
1: Yes. Um, (laughs) And in this dream, there, of course, is Magneto, because he's the source of this trauma. And he rips Logan's skeleton out as one just mass, leaving Logan this sort of boneless husk that Xavier grabs onto before Logan can go into the light where everybody he's ever loved is calling for him. The voices of his loved ones are pulling him. And Xavier tries to pull him back, saying... Logan, it's death. Oh, Charlie, don't you think I know that?
0: Um, But as he's heading into that light, and Angelic Ilyana, um kisses Logan's forehead and pushes him away back into life.
1: And this part's kind of weird for me, because I think Ilyana in that role works, like this whole idea that she's, you'd finally gotten past all of the demonic stuff in her life, and she's at least at peace. But the fact is, Logan didn't really know Ilyana very well. And also, there
0: are so many
1: dead people with whom he has direct emotional connections. Yeah, seriously, there are so many pretty dead ladies in Logan's past. Well, and, and
0: so many, you know, dead bros and comrades. And the point is, if you want to have Logan met by someone who's dead and fondly remembered who says, nice to see you, but, but shoo, you got stuff to do. You, you have a wide selection, and I mean, Iliana is, Iliana feels kind of cheap here.
1: Yeah, but anyway, everything's continuing to go to shit outside. Like, it just keeps ramping up and up and up. They're going through an electrical storm, and everything goes to hell, and the plane shreds apart, and Jean telekinetically pushes everybody back into the plane as they get pulled out of it, but then she gets pulled out, and that's what brings Logan back from the light. That's what brings him back into the world and gives them the will to push through the pain and live again. He catches her and there's this wonderful page of this just like shattered shredded logan reaching out holding Jean as she's just dangling out of the plane like i'm not a big fan of the damsel in distress trope but Jean's just been shown as so powerful at this point and she's almost sacrificed herself to save literally all of them that like i'm okay with this
0: yeah it's it's neat and it's cool having what brings logan back being specifically, and I mean, I, I know, you know, the fact that it's Gina significant, but also that it's specifically having the back of a teammate. Cause this, this is Logan and he is, he is the guy who was absolutely convinced he would never be a team player, that he would never be a part of something, that he would never care about the people around him the way that his teammates and the, whoever was running his team at the time wanted him to. And that that's his connection back. Is, is great. You know, that its gene and its romance is, is also a character note, but that it's anyone at all, that it's another person, period, and a teammate, feels
1: as significant in its own right. That's a really good point, and yeah, I, I completely agree. And speaking of Logan's status on a team, two weeks later, after the plane does finally make it down, Logan heads back into the danger room, even though Moira McTaggart protests, which, I mean, fair enough, and it goes really badly. He's slow, and he's scared, and eventually that anger builds up inside him, that frustration, and we get
0: so sa- I want to talk about sound effects. I love sound effects. Sound effects are really cool when they're done right, and when they're done right, they're really evocative, and this is one of those sound effects that s- sticks with me, That that just... Is so viscerally effective. The sound effect um, is just spelled S C H U K K, and it's. I can't. I can't make the noise that it evokes, the sort of wet tearing of it. But this is the counterpoint
1: to snicked. Exactly. Snicked was these sleek, perfectly smooth metal claws coming out and Logan's healing factor immediately starting to seal the holes. This is the opposite.
0: Yeah, this is messy and it's gross and it's awkward and it's got a double consonant and um, it is the noise that is made by bone claws ripping their way out of Logan's hands.
1: And there's this full page spread of Logan on his knees screaming in agony as these not jagged, but not as smooth as the metal ones. Claws are protruding from his his knuckles, and there are just chunks of flesh and spatters of blood everywhere around him. It's fucking gross, and it works, and it's a hell of a retcon. If you'd like to see a version of this scene that
0: has many, many similar components but super doesn't work, it's also technically the end of the the intro to X-Men Origins Wolverine. Only he's like 12.
1: I feel like the, if you want to see this scene, but it doesn't work, you should watch X-Men Origins Wolverine can be used in so many different contexts.
0: God, yeah. I had a really long conversation about that movie today. And, um, just, 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 it's, it's so
1: bad. and I love it so much. Yes. And yes. (laughs)
0: It's just, it's so entertaining, man. Some, at some point, some convention, some event, I really want to do a
1: watch along with commentary. Oh, that would be so much fun. Yeah. But, but we're getting away from the important thing, which is giant goddamn retcon about Logan before it was, like, confirmed in multiple places that his claws were mechanical. They were added by the Weapon X project. They weren't part of his mutant power. And here that turns out not to be the case. They were always there, and the metal just bonded to them in the Weapon X project, just like it bonded to the rest of his skeleton. And what I really appreciate about this, one, I think it's just a really cool concept, but two... It works with one of the strange little bits of the Weapon X story where they talked about how, for some reason they couldn't understand, the adamantium in its liquid form was pooling in Wolverine's hands and wrists. And we just assumed that, oh, it went wrong and that's why he got claws. But no, apparently if this is the new continuity, if we're going to accept this retcon, it completely fits. There were claws that they couldn't see for whatever goddamn reason, and the metal bonded to them, and I love that. It's really weird that they couldn't see
0: them. They would definitely have shown
1: up on x-rays. I think we were shown on multiple occasions during the Weapon X storyline that those were not good scientists. They were smart, but they were not wise. They missed some important things, including apparently this.
0: I'm I'm imagining them just sort of trying to overlay a game of Operation.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. And now I'm just imagining Logan referring to Professor X as Charlie Horse. That doesn't make sense, but it's still in my head.
0: That that really
1: doesn't make sense.
0: Um, so we've got that detail, and that, in a lot of ways, is the transition to the scene that sort of feels like the first day of the rest of Logan's life.
1: Yeah, he's sitting under a tree with Jubilee, who's yammering on about Moira being a dork. I actually really like the way that Larry Hama writes Jubilee. She's such oh, a 13-year-old. Yeah. And there's this nice trio of panels of the two of them reflected upside down in the water nearby, and then it's sort of broken by ripples as Jubilee tosses um, a piece of popcorn into it. Like, this is a good way to take a talking heads scene where it's just two people talking and it could be visually boring and to keep it really interesting and engaging. Like, I'm more and more impressed with Hubert's art in this. Like, I like his brother's art, too, but goddamn, this is just great.
0: Yeah, this is terrific, and it's—the other cool thing about using the water and using the uh, upside-down water reflections is you get a scene of two characters where you can see them, but where you also get the character's eye view.
1: Yeah, no, that's very true as well. And Jubilee doesn't want to p- get put anything on Wolverine's mind, but she's Jubilee, so she can't stay quiet about anything for very long. And she talks about something that actually happened recently in the Wolverine series— about how her powers are evolving and getting a lot more powerful and dangerous ever since she met her parents' killers. Long story, but suffice to say, yeah, she met them, now her powers are better, character revolution, etc.
0: And Wolverine, meanwhile, is, is chucking his claws in and out, trying to figure out why he never knew they were there pre-weapon acts, and... There's there's a lovely panel of a butterfly perching on the tip of one, which, along with a much later scene in Generation X, establishes one of the weirder off-points of continuity, which is that the Xavier School is populated by butterflies attracted to pointy things.
1: I mean, I'll buy that. Oh, here's my retcon for that. Years later, we're going to we're gonna find out that it was this one mutant the entire time and they were um, stuck in a butterfly form due to their mutation and for some reason they could only become human if they stayed on a pointy thing for long enough. But like Wolverine and Penance and everybody keep moving around too much so they can't do it.
0: Oh, see, I like the idea that there are just mutant butterflies and because butterflies go through generations so much more quickly eventually the ones that survived were the ones who were fine with like really sharp stuff
1: <laughs> that actually makes sense there are many sharp things at the Xavier school right so he's just got the world's
0: most durable butterflies in the garden <laughs> very nice they've gotten through multiple explosions they've just these these are just unkillable butterflies
1: oh man in our earth it's gonna be the cockroaches that survive the apocalypse in the 616 it'll be those butterflies.
0: Well, those butterflies and gambit.
1: Those butterflies and gambit, yes. Now, Jubilee is also worried about the durability of nearby organisms, as Logan is clearly painfully and bloodily popping his claws out. How can your hands heal if you keep- I pop them out a few times a day now. Keeps the channel open. Like pierced ears.
0: So, it stopped hurting?
1: Nope. Kind of reminds me of that amazing early scene from the first X-Men movie where Logan talks about how it hurts every time. It's just it's just a really nice Logan bit right there, just that single monosyllable.
0: And Logan is is giving Jubilee one of his one of his signature Yeah, you know, old man wisdom talks. Specifically, he's talking about how Xavier helped him when he was just a hungry animal, helped helped him feel at home in Salem Center, and that Jubilee should stick with Xavier, with the implication that Logan isn't gonna
1: be around. All us motherless children wandering through the storm. And all of a sudden, there's a light in a window and somebody to take us in and close the door against the wind. Old Charlie Xavier.
0: And indeed, Logan is heading out. And the last few pages of the issue are overlaid with his letter to Jubilee, one of a whole stack of letters that he he left for the other X-Men.
1: He talks about, in his surprisingly good penmanship, how he's a liability now and he needs to go off on his own, how he needs to hang up his pinstripes before they send him to the minor leagues— But that Jubilee is one of the strongest people that he's ever met, and one of the brightest lights, and that she should hold on to her wonder, and that he'll always miss her. It's actually—it's a really emotional scene. He leaves her his cowboy hat, which is really sweet. He does, and just as he's motorcycling off, the only thing he's taken are the clothes on his back and a a wrapped-up object that I assume is the Clan Yoshida uh, honor sword— But as he leaves...
0: Nah, it's just a random
1: yardstick he got attached to. Could be that. But as he leaves, there's this nice little image of Jubilee in her pajamas, wearing that cowboy hat, sadly waving at him from the window, and he waves back and bikes off, and that butterfly just sort of follows behind as the issue ends, and it's just so beautiful. This is a beautiful issue.
0: While I absolutely agree that it's beautiful, I am going to ruin it with a critical question. Is the butterfly actually keeping up with his motorcycle? Well, it's a mutant butterfly, so yes. So, Logan would be gone from the team for the next several
1: years, and he won't get his adamantium back for six years. Yeah, like, this was such an impressive move for Marvel to do. And like we were talking about last episode, you know, they were probably trying to have a big status quo changing event to compete with the death of Superman and Nightfall over at at DC— but still, to have their most popular character leave their most popular team, I can't see them doing that these days in a million years. Although, I guess they did kill him for a long time, so maybe.
0: Not only did they kill him, but I just realized, and I can't believe I didn't make this connection before, that they had then the book called The Wolverines with, like, the six other Wolverine-themed characters.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Which, which again, is, is a Death of Superman thing, and I'm... Really irritated at myself for not catching up. <laughs> but yeah, so Wolverine's going to be gone for a while. He's going to go off on adventures. He is going to lose his nose. He is going to regress and start licking people. And it's going to be a little bit weird.
1: It's a really weird little bit of continuity. Yeah, Logan is going to turn into like a, a, a feral beast man. Not that feral. And um, there's a scene of him licking Cyclops. And, uh, you know, it's comics. Let's just go with it. So yeah, that's, that's Wolverine's exit from the X-Men for quite a long time, and I think it has handled damn near perfectly.
0: I gotta say, I wish that this had been the last chapter of Fatal Attractions, because it's such a good end note, but it's not. Um, We can pretend it is, because the, the next thing doesn't really could just as easily come before it, but unfortunately was published after, and that's Excalibur number 71, Crossing Swords. It's written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Ken Lashley, Derek Robertson, and Matthew Ryan, inked by Cam Smith, Randy Elliott, Randy Emberlin, and Mark Nelson, and colored by Joe Roses.
1: And unlike, say, Uncanny X-Men 304, the Fatal Attractions chapter in that book, where different artists took different scenes that were kind of, like, tailored to their strengths, with this, the Pencilers just seem to be chosen for different pages kind of at random.
0: Well, no, it's 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 what what it comes across as, and I, I haven't confirmed this for certain, is is, is a rush issue where you, you have a very limited period of time. So you get an, a bunch of Pencilers with pretty complementary styles and... You know, hand them each a couple pages so that you can get the thing out the door on time.
1: Mm-hmm. But again, it's a fatal attractions issue, and that means hologram.
0: And our hologram this issue is Nightcrawler with the caption, A Comrade's Return,
1: a Friendship Lost. Or, A Comrade's Return, a Friendship
0: Lost. Oh, I like the dual meaning of comrade there. Yeah, right? Because he's Russian! I've actually started using that as a term of address because I, I've been trying to come up with more gender-neutral honorifics, or at least gender non-specific honorifics, and a lot of the ones that are out there that are pretty good also imply specific rank, and I always feel weird about the idea of using them And, you know, because they're, they're, you know, what if, what if it is actually a sailor or, you know, someone who's, who's part of, (laughs) part of a hierarchy that Captain is involved in and like it's actually a Commodore and I insult them by accident or whatever. Um, So, so Comrade is the one that I've, I've been settling on. And I I like the general implications of it too, that, you know, both, both, both in terms of, of, yeah, politics, but also just in, in, in terms of, of the, the implication of, of camaraderie. Anyway, um, (laughs) anyway, so. Muir Island got mostly blown up during the Muir Island saga, and it was rebuilt in some pretty interesting directions. And one of the things that has been either added or retconned into it was a psychiatric ward from which most of the patients escaped during and as a result of the EMP because I guess they don't use physical locks. And this is weird, and I'm really uncomfortable with Moira supervising any
1: kind of mental health care for anyone. Do you think they added like a bunch of water slides and stuff too while they were rebuilding it? I hope they did. Like a, a um, fire pole. Oh, they should totally have a fire pole. Fire poles are great. Like, ever since I saw Ghostbusters when I was a kid, I wanted to slide on a fire pole. And then I finally got to. And you know what? It was that much fun. It was great. I love fire poles.
0: So the big action here starts off with Professor X, Gene, and Cyclops showing up. And that's how you can tell something really big is going, da- is going down in Caliber is that, you know, some of the X-Men have come in from their books. And... They are here to ask Kitty to do something for them. They want her to lure Colossus back to Earth because they've decided that his choice to join the Acolytes was a result of traumatic brain injury, and they need to coerce him into getting medical help. So I have a lot of problems with their approach to this issue. It's really creepy, and it's couched in you know, paternalism. P- paternalistic concern, but god damn are there consent issues here.
1: Sure are. And, you know, apparently they think he's incapable of seeing things straight because the executioner hit him with like a Shi'ar something or other lance way back in that Uncanny X-Men annual or whatever. That, of course, is why he's been stuck in his metal form throughout Ilyana's death and fatal attraction so far. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the implication is that Xavier is sure that no, none of the X-Men would ever join Magneto and the Acolytes under any circumstances, so of course it has to be because of a traumatic brain injury or whatever. Professor Xavier is a jerk. Sometimes. And he
0: is entirely dismissive of, of Kitty's doubts.
1: For the moment, I need you, Catherine. First and foremost, to stop carrying on like a spoiled child who clamps her hands over her ears when she doesn't wish to hear something.
0: Uh Uh-uh, Professor. We've had this conversation once too often, when I was still a minor living at the mansion. The whole stern but benevolent patriarch riff isn't going to work anymore.
1: You have a case to make, make it as an adult, one-on-one. And this is interesting, because Kitty says, when I was still a minor. Now, she turned 15 back in Excalibur number 24, 50 issues ago almost, sure, but like, in universe time, that's not that long.
0: Yeah, um, I think we've talked before about Warren Ellis thinking she was much older when when he was writing the book, but I guess that slide started with with
1: Lobdell here. I think so, yeah, but honestly— I kind of like it. I mean, with Jubilee being around, with X-Force being around, I like the idea that Kitty is now an adult, even if she is a young one. Maybe it doesn't make that much sense continuity-wise, but I think it really fits her character's journey.
0: I feel like the fact that she was forced to participate in the decisions she was forced to participate in during
1: Ilyana's death at the very least have earned her the right to be treated as an adult in this. And that's not the only reason she resents Xavier here. She also mentions that he didn't really seem to care when he came back from space that her, Kurt, and Rachel had all left the X-Men and had been gone for a long time. And fair enough, that's barely been addressed. Well, you know, if, if, if he could have managed to figure out how to work a
0: telephone, it might have been different, but—
1: Now, 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 in the Marvel Universe, specifically the X corner of the Marvel Universe, communicating with anybody using something as direct as a phone is unthinkable.
0: So this is part of what bugs me. And this is this is, again, part of the problem, because the ethical way to handle this would be to contact Colossus and say, we are concerned that you are suffering from the effects of a traumatic brain injury. We have the means to treat it here. Will you let us do so and be transparent about that? Because he's an adult. He has the right to refuse medical care, and they
1: don't give him that option, and it is fucked up. Although this is Professor Xavier, I kind of feel like if he called up uh, Avalon, he would instead just say, Piotr Rasputin, give yourself 50 demerits. Oh, God, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm
0: sure that there was that conversation somewhere, somewhere off the page. What he instead does is have Kitty call up Avalon and tell Colossus that she wants to join him there
1: and see if he can come get her. And we'll get right back to that. But in the meantime, we have a rather odd subplot involving, of all people, Cable.
0: Cable is trying to hunt down the Acolytes on account of Magneto having generally screwed him up pretty bad, but not as bad as Wolverine. Also, Cable is fine now somehow.
1: I mean, I guess it's easier to just, like, rebuild your robot parts than it is to cram metal back inside your skeleton.
0: Yeah, but like they got ripped out. They were they were attached to other parts of him and they are parts of his body. It's not just that he has cybernetic implants and limbs, like he has techno-organic limbs because of the virus, but they're they're part of his body. That's established soon yeah. after this pretty firmly in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix.
1: Yeah, but this is Cable. I mean, he gets in like weekly bar fights in a meat grinder. I kind of feel like he's gotten very, very good at reassembling himself after severe structural damage.
0: Who builds a bar in a meat grinder?
1: I don't know. It's Apocalypse's dark future. Somebody.
0: I'm pretty sure the meat grinder is is a na- the name of at least one really divey hookup bar. But anyway,
1: <laughs> God, you're totally right. I, um, I don't want to go there. You'd catch something.
0: Although, actually, this this remind the the grinder part of this remi- and and cable remind remind me um that I found the most amazing Tumblr today when I was clicking around. It's called Ask Strife.
1: Oh yeah, you sent me a link. It's so good.
0: Yeah. Um. It's, it's
1: fantastic. It is um,
0: it's it's It contains a, adult content, text-wise, so, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, I was definitely shrieking with laughter while reading it. I'll link to it in the as-mentioned. You do you. Creator of askstrife.tumblr.com. If you're a listener, good work. Thank you. You are a gift to the universe.
1: A snarky, petulant, metal-covered gift.
0: Speaking of snarky metal-covered gifts, oh my god! Thank you for that segue. The, I love Professor in this this issue. In fact, yeah, pr- one of the things I like about Professor and
1: Cable's relationship is Professor is sassy as hell. And to clarify, this is Professor, the artificial intelligence that used to be Ship that hangs out inside Cable Cybernetics, not Professor Xavier, who's in the other part of the plot.
0: Right. This is the good Professor. <laughs> so, so you get bits of dialogue like.
1: Trust me, Professor. He's being set up, as sure as my name is Cable.
0: Technically, your name is Nathaniel dayspring Ascani.
1: All AI humor, taking things all literally. I love it.
0: As Cable sneaks onto the island, Nightcrawler is having a rough day. He is concerned that Excalibur is dissolving out
1: from under him, and he's not wrong. And he's talking to Cyclops about this, the other team leader that he probably knows best at this point. Well, I guess maybe he knows Storm a little better. Regardless, he knows Cyclops very well. And Cyclops says, hey, it's not just you, bro. I mean, the X-Men almost disbanded or even really did disband a number of times. But yeah, Kurt's not wrong because you remember how Excalibur only had five members left at the end of the last issue? Well, guess what?
0: Yeah, so Micromax and Kylan are just gone they don't address it at all um i've decided that they're just training in the woods the entire
1: time well they do briefly address it i mean kylan went to look for his parents again because the last time he tried he got kidnapped by the crazy yang, and micromax went to get a job at the brand corporation that shitty company where beast turned into a furry guy
0: okay but counterpoint
1: they might just be training in the woods I'm going to assume that those were just the cover stories that they gave Nightcrawler because they felt embarrassed that they were quitting a team just to like have fun sword fights in the woods for the next you know ten to fifteen years. I feel like if anyone would
0: understand that, it would be Nightcrawler.
1: That's a really good point. Well, you know, Micromax barely knows Nightcrawler, and Kylan's unsure of Earth six one six customs, so maybe they were just playing it safe.
0: As far as points of understanding, though, one of one of the things I, I dig about, um. Nightcrawler and Cyclops' conversation is is the fact that it touches on the fact that for both of them, the X-Men are really the family they've got at this point.
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, for different reasons for each of them, but it's true. And they also, I think, approach leadership in somewhat similar fashions. They both take it very seriously, even if Kurt comes off as all, like, adventurous and sometimes sarcastic.
0: Mm. Now, we've got another interesting family relationship to explore here because— Jean and Rachel finally get some long-awaited resolution. As you might recall, Jean was extremely hostile to the idea of having a, a full-grown alternate universe daughter show up and think of her as a mother, to the point that it actually you know, showed up as one of her anxiety hallucinations
1: during the Mastermind scenario on Muir Island. Yeah, that was back in Days of Future Present when they first met up and Jean freaked out, right? Um, yeah, that was the first
0: time that happened. Uh, the, the Mastermind thing was, was more recent. Right, right, right. But in general, Jean is is not super happy with the fact that she's basically been stuck with essentially two kids that she didn't, you know, didn't make, didn't procure. And didn't get to make the choice to have or not have. You know, she's got Nathan, who she, she did fine with because he was, he was a baby and then he got sent into the future. But Rachel, who is, is, is a person with words and complicated feelings um, and the ability to express them, is a different story. And she and Jean have really not gotten along well. Jean has been has very, very deliberately capture at arm's length, which makes the fact that she now seeks Rachel out, um, pretty significant.
1: You don't like me very much, do you?
0: Actually, I love you. In a way, you're the closest thing I have to a mother. I always figured you didn't like me very much.
1: After my resurrection, I'll admit I wasn't thrilled to find I had a teenage daughter from another time stream. But that was my problem. And I, selfishly, made it yours. I'm sorry.
0: Hey, she learned something from that mastermind annual
1: after all, and she also foreshadows that she's going to propose soon. And I love how immediately ecstatic Rachel Summers is, because we don't very often get to see Rachel, well, happy at all, let alone excited. Remember, Rachel's actually pretty young. She's probably at the very oldest in her early twenties and maybe even in her late teens still. And yet she comes off as just so adult. And here we see that childlike youthful innocence shine through.
0: Well, we've seen some of that before in, you know, when, when Jean was dead specifically and in context of her relationship with Scott and, and, what she thinks, the way she reacts to stuff. Um, here, and here specifically, Jean hints that she's she's gonna be proposing to Scott by telling Rachel that there's a decent chance she might be born sometime soon, which is a whole weird, circular thing. <laughs> Only in comics.
1: Or I guess anything involving complicated time travel, but, um, definitely in comics. As Jean heads off, Rachel says, Go get him, Mom. <laughs> Mom. Huh. Mom. Huh. Oh. Like, I love these characters, and they're being happy, and they're being nice to each other, and it makes my heart happy. Rachel gets a lot of interesting family conversations in this issue
0: because she goes straight from talking with Jean to meeting Cable. This is the first time the two of them have met and both been adults, except they kind of haven't because both of them are at wildly different points in their timeline. This Rachel has not yet met Nathan past infancy, but... Cable grew up with a much, much older Rachel in his head.
1: Again, comics. But, of course, speaking of this being a comic book, this turns into a fight based on a misunderstanding, or maybe even not based on a misunderstanding, because Cable wants to go after Colossus, who's aligned himself with the Acolytes. Rachel wants to stop him, so they fight. And one thing I really appreciate is that during this fight, after Cable drops like a bunch of rocks on Rachel, she uses her time-shifting power, which is very seldom mentioned, but is her primary mutant power, to shift herself 10 seconds into the future to dodge it. And that's rad.
0: Yeah, that is super, super, super cool. Now, the fight and the potential conversation are totally ruined when Rachel partly turns into Captain Britain and begs Cable to help save her or him, from the time stream. Because, hey, why not? And then she turns back into herself, decides she doesn't have time to deal with Cable in the midst of everything else, so psychically knocks him out, because that seems like the most
1: efficient solution. Yeah, that sounds like Rachel Summers. I love how bad she is at personing. Me too. And, uh, yeah, so that whole Captain Britain thing, I mean, we won't touch on it much here because that's literally all we get and nobody knows what's going on. Um, but that will be a really big deal in about, oh, I don't know, four issues.
0: Yeah, so, so Piotr does head down and, um, the Acolytes are fine with this. They see it as an opportunity for him to cut off his final ties on Earth and with the X-Men. And he and Kitty talk, and he explains his reasons for going with Magneto, which are actually pretty solid and involve that, you know, the fact that Xavier's dream has really done nothing to prevent a lot of really horrible things, and maybe it's time to try something else, and he thinks that maybe he can be a voice for peace among the acolytes.
1: And Kitty disagrees with his central premise, saying,
0: But don't you see, Peter? It wasn't the dream that failed you. Was the reality. Which is to say, Xavier's dream is fine, but Xavier himself? Asshole.
1: Probably not what she means, but, uh, I mean, you're not wrong, necessarily. I mean, at this point in the story, it could very reasonably be what she means. Well, I get the impression that Kitty's basically saying, hey, the dream is solid, it's just that life really sucks sometimes, and you can't fix that fact. And in fact, life sucks right now, because Kitty, hating herself for doing it, tearfully phases Colossus in a way that somehow freezes him in place, which I'm not sure how that works, but whatever, and the X-Men restrain him, and he is, I think, more sad than angry because the one person he trusted most in the world just straight-up betrayed him. And he's very specifically
0: protesting this, very explicitly, and they keep going anyway, and again, this this issue really, really bothers me, and to her fictional credit, uh, Kitty is pretty upset about it, too. Saying? There you go, Professor. Now will you be handing me my 30 pieces of silver or depositing it directly in my account?
1: Well, the Acolytes are pretty pissed off too because this was not the deal, and a few of them show up to pick up Colossus. Namely, Amelia Vogt, Euniceon, and Katu. So
0: for a brief recap of who these folks are, uh, Amelia Vote is Professor Xavier's ex-Flame. She can turn herself and surrounding matter into mist and also teleport somehow through that. Unision is has a psionic exoskeleton and bioelectric charges, which is to say the 90s generic energy powers pack. And Katu is mostly notable for once having had his arms ripped off by Omega Red.
1: Hooray! Well, the various heroes, during a moment of calm before everything goes to shit, do manage to combine their mutant powers, including Cyclops' optic blast as a scalpel, which is pretty cool, to cure Colossus's head wound, enabling him to turn back into flesh. And this is surprising, because he changes physically, but his entire seeming, his entire manner, his entire affect changes as well. Yeah, um,
0: part of why he
1: didn't want to turn back
0: into flesh... Um, is because with that come hella feelings. This is something we're going to see again a couple times with him, specifically when Kitty appears to be dead much, much later during the Whedon run. And it's also something we're going to see with, interestingly enough, another character whose powers echo his, Emma Frost, um, which is, is doubly interesting considering that Morrison put her on the team and gave her that
1: secondary mu- mutation specifically as a stand-in for Colossus. But there is one important distinction. With Emma, when she goes into her diamond form, her emotions literally turn off. And I get the strong impression that with Colossus, his emotions are right where they were. It just is sort of almost a a symbolic gesture, a symbolic rejection of feeling. I don't think he's actually turning his feelings off. He's just giving him permission to run away from them when he stays in his metal form for long periods of time.
0: So he kind of falls apart, has a lot of feelings about Ilyana and then goes out to interrupt Nightcrawler's fight with the Acolytes who've come to get Pyotr to say that he's going back.
1: There is no need to continue this fight, vote. I have every intention of honoring my word to Exodus and will return with you to Avalon. But you should know this. I am doing so because I genuinely believe my presence might make a difference, that I can convince you the man who was Magneto stood for much more than blood and violence and death. That the difference between his goal and that of Xavier's is nearly identical in intent, if not in execution. Goodbye, Godspot and Xavier. For although I don't blame you for my sister's death, I do not feel you or any of us who pursue your dream have done all we can to help our kind. When you found me, I was an atheist, raised to serve the state. For better or for worse, you made me believe in something. And I can never return to my belief in nothing. For that, at least, I will always be grateful. He's never going to put another marmot in a bathtub. (laughs) That reference took me a second to catch, but I like that. I... It actually makes me a little more okay with Colossus's general modern portrayal as weirdly enough a Christian because he was very specifically an atheist when he joined the X Men, but you know it kind of follows that that he was a he would be a person who would really glom onto the concept of belief after meeting Professor Xavier and having his entire life change. So yeah, I mean obviously God isn't mentioned here, but I really do buy the idea that Colossus has been transformed almost against his will into a believer.
0: Finally, once Colossus is gone, Kitty, Nightcrawler, and Rachel tell Xavier about their plans for a new Excalibur. They want to do something that the, the none of the other X-teams are really accomplishing right now. They want to do more than just crisis management to catch the stuff that falls through the cracks of the other teams and to try to basically make a positive difference, not just respond to, to crises and problems.
1: As Nightcrawler says... It falls to us to cut a swath of tolerance and understanding through the blanket of ignorance and fear that often separates our two races. It's a good plan, but it's also not really going to happen. Yeah, Excalibur, honestly, for the remainder of its run, I think is going to be a book in search of a concept. It's got a great collection of characters, it's got some pretty good creative teams here and there, but I don't think it ever really knows what it wants to be again.
0: Yeah. And this this idea of of being the X team who's who's proactive is one that we're gonna see on and off again throughout over, over the years, and it's never really gonna stick, which is a shame because it's a really interesting concept. Honestly, I think the team that's accomplished it best so far is probably the champions.
1: You know? That's actually a really good point. You're referring, of course, to the modern champions, like with Ms. Marvel yeah, and everybody. Yeah, not
0: not like not 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 Angel.
1: Yeah, not Angel. What has he ever done right? <laughs> Sorry? He's just flown into windows and, like, you know, clamped his claws on tree branches close to the trunk so it doesn't get blown off in bad weather. I mean, what he's done right is exactly what Hawks have done right. Exactly. Precisely. So this story, it ends with this new declaration of intent, and it also ends with a big splash page of the three remaining members of Excalibur, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Phoenix, posing all dramatically, two of them in new costumes. Nightcrawler's back to his traditional costume after a brief flirtation with the one he got in space— Kitty Pride, however, is wearing a costume that's a sort of higher-tech, more 90s variation on the X-Men yellow and black or yellow and blue training uniform, and she's going to have a version of that costume basically for the rest of her history up until the present day. It's kind of a shame because, man, that blue Caliber
0: costume was pretty much the only one she's had that really had its own visual identity and wasn't terrible. What I really wish is that she'd stuck with the one from True Friends, but yeah.
1: That was great. That that flight jacket and stuff. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I mean I'm a little more okay with it. Like I love Kitty Pride's blue costume, like her Shadow Cat costume. It's my mm. favorite costume that she's ever had. But I do feel like her character evolution makes her wearing something that feels that fanciful feel a little off. So I can understand wanting to make a change.
0: Yeah, she very much strikes me in this regard as the kid who was very, very into fashion and dress up as a kid and hit the point at as at, at adulthood where they just wore sweatpants non-stop for about five straight years because they just decided they were done with that and they were
1: tired of it and just went totally utilitarian. Wait, Jay, I just realized something. Kitty Pride got a new costume. Everyone should take a drink!
0: But specifically, they should take, like, the first drink that they drank the first time they drank. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly that.
1: Uh, unless that was, like, I don't know, like, Terrible, watery American beer or something. Don't don't have that.
0: Or, or vodka and milk.
1: Okay, so I was at a sleepover at my house when I was a kid. And my friends decided we were going to raid the liquor cabinet and, like, mix stuff together. But we had no idea what we were doing. Okay.
0: I would like to state for the record that I was at I was I was at the sleepover and I tried to stop them. I tried to explain why this was a bad idea, because I actually knew what the difference between liquors were, because, you know, I had parents who told me stuff, which was cool. But I also was a an nerd. And um, they decided they wanted to make white Russians. And they were like, well, there's vodka, Kahlua and cream. We don't have Kahlua, but we've got vodka and milk. That's going to be almost the same, right? It um wasn't. Yeah, some of you didn't drink in high school because of
1: ethics. I didn't drink in high school because... Ugh. I tried to drink in high school. It just went terribly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the point is, Kitty Pryde's got a new costume, and that is great. And uh, now we're, we're back to a core concept for a character we haven't seen in years as much as I love that blue costume that stuck around forever. We also see Rachel Summers' Phoenix in a blue and yellow variant of the Phoenix costume. Which, it turns out, was a coloring error. She's going to be back in the red and yellow by the next issue, but I gotta say, it looks pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's good for now. Um,
1: you know what else is cool? Our listeners are really cool, and some of them have questions. Devin asks via email, I noticed that, while Lobdell wrapped up a lot of dangling plot threads for Davis— Warwolves, Nightcrawler's powers, etc., I don't think he touched Kitty's powers. However, in Alan Davis's run, her powers seemed back to their pre-mutant massacre mode— Granted, I'm not a Kitty Pride expert, hence me asking the question, so I'm not sure what happened in the interim. But then I remember her powers acting more uncontrollable during God Loves Man Kills 2, a.k.a. when Claremont was back. So my question basically was if Kitty's powers slash the mutant massacre's effects on them are in that nebulous does-the-writer-remember-it does status, if they were tacitly fixed until Claremont retconned it, or if there was ever an official fix to them.
0: As far as I can tell, Kitty gradually recovered over the several years after the mutant massacre um partly through deliberate work and effort and partly just through recovery um her powers have been varyingly controllable over the years what her default state was whether it was phased or solid has has varied and been slightly less consistent ever since the mutant massacre than it was before um based on a combination of external factors and and her state of mind at the time
1: Yeah, I remember there being mentions here and there in Excalibur before this of Kitty working on regaining control bit by bit of not being default-faced all the time, but I don't think there was any one big turning point. And having searched Google and our various resources and the text of our own episode notes uh, for a while this afternoon, that that didn't turn anything specific up. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's just sort of whatever the writer decides.
0: Avril asks on Twitter, Jay and Miles, what would your powers be under the Victor Von Doom paradox? Now, um, as a reminder to those of you who, who have forgotten or didn't listen, that's, that's, that's when people's names directly inform or reflect
1: their powers. Etymological destiny.
0: Right. So, what do you think, Miles? You've, I feel like you've got a lot more going for you here than I do.
1: Right, Miles Stokes. Okay, so we have a unit of distance, and then we have a term for either empowering a fire or being excited. Now, if we're talking like superhero comic style powers, I'm going to say let's take Miles as being miles per hour, which is to say speed instead of distance. You know, you could get both and basically have a power that was essentially seven league boots. You could, but but what I ended up with was that the more excited I get, the faster I can go, which I feel like for me actually kind of makes a lot of sense. Oh cool, and that actually incorporates your first and last name. Exactly or like maybe for a more combative power i could speed up the motion of electrons so as to create friction and stoke some sort of like electricity or heat in a target i feel like that's a reach so maybe let's just go with the thing where i get really excited and then i get fast
0: so my my name or at least the name my my original name doesn't include any 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 you know common nouns or any 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 words that would imply powers but as a result of that, specifically, my last name does come with an occasionally useful power in real life. And that is being related to every single other person with the surname edited within about three, uh, two or three generations, um, because it is a name that has been through so many different translations that it's unique to one family.
1: That said, when you say your full name, it does kind of remind me of Wolverine, comma, Killing, you know, J, comma, editin, like, editing, which is a thing that you do.
0: But the thing is, that's phonetic, that's not the word, and it falls apart if it's written down, which is an important component of the Victor Von Doom paradox because it's comics-based.
1: That is a very good point.
0: Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, Miles is, is doing double duty, and the, the mic is not going to one character, but
1: it is going to be shared between Sexy Rogue and Sexy Gambit. I gotta say, Remy, this ambiguous quadruple date idea of yours seemed as unorthodox as wearing a prom dress to a funeral. But dang if there ain't more chemistry than a high school curriculum with these folks. Maybe it's common experience? You and I have been trying to find happiness in the face of death and plane crashes and badly handled trust walks. Ryan Baker came to this date straight from an exploding nuclear submarine torn apart by angry geese and still looks dang good. Oui, my share. Gambit uses online dating skills to dare fullest in finding these thieves of hearts. And I think you'll be onto something. Jeff Holland, as intriguing as Ryan, has perfect hair that even Gambit envies, even after being the sole survivor of an entire timeline collapsing and stranded them into 6-1 sticks. Rogue my Belle, the four of us gonna have a fine night here at Papa Gumbo's Cajun Cookout. We compare tragedy, and then maybe, we see what we can do about evenin' things out. Cajun style.
0: I appreciate that you brought back the angry geese. They're everywhere. And with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
1: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and ExplainTheXMen.com.
0: Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, March 14th through
1: 17th. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
0: Next week, we're flipping our baseball caps backwards and tuning up our skateboards. It's time to get extreme. <laughs> Oh, God, I just spit all over my computer screen. we (laughs) have noises?
1: Cable, you jerk. Look what you made me do.
0: Now, if you decide to use a tag, that might not be a terrible one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.